Once upon a time, there was a young shepherd, a boy after God's own heart. He went from tending sheep to leading armies, from wearing a sword to wearing a crown. He was one of history's greatest kings, who committed one of history's most infamous murders. His rise built a kingdom, his fall would tear it apart. Yeah, welcome this morning. Before we get into our time in God's Word, just a quick announcement. If you're here and you're single, there's a number of things that are happening with our Mosaic Singles here this Christmas season. Uh, You can go to our Mosaic Singles Facebook page and find out about that. I know this week they're having uh, a number of events alongside the Settlement Home for Children. You may know if you were here in November, we raised around $25,000 as a church to give away to them. And so there's a wrap party this week as we continue on our ministry with them uh, over, I believe, even Elevate. They're going to wrap some gifts and presents from 7 to 9 and then uh, some slots to take those kids over. Excuse me, the gifts to the kids are still available. Again, you can go on that Facebook page and find out all about it. There you go. Well, this morning we're looking again at the life of David, part two. And the reason we're doing that is because, of course, when Jesus was born at, you know, Christmas time, he was referred to as the son of David. Luke says that Jesus was born in the town of David. And so if we can get a glimpse of who David was, we can really see our true King Jesus even more clearly this morning. And so let's take a look at our, our scripture passage and the passage on which the teaching is based today. It's going to be from Second Samuel chapters 11 and 12, sort of a composite reading here. You can follow along, as always, on the screen or in the Bible that you brought with you today. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. 
David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. It's God's word to us this morning. Now, one of the most famous peacemakers in history that most people are aware of was the Indian man named Mahatma Gandhi. But what most people aren't aware of is the extent to which Gandhi actually claimed to have based his own life and teachings on the teachings and the humanitarian ethic of Jesus of Nazareth. Of Nazareth. Now, despite being an advisor to kings and queens and a friend of celebrities in his day, Gandhi would never travel by plane. He would only travel by train. And when he traveled by train, he would only travel in third class with the, with the animals and, and with the peasants in the back. And when he was asked why he only traveled by third class, he would say, because there's no fourth class. Yeah, no fourth class. Uh, Agani intentionally embraced the lowest caste in the Hindu caste system called the untouchables. And he gave him a new name when she identified with himself. He called them the children of God. He adopted a leprosy patient as his own bandage. Uh, uh, the child's bandages himself personally, putting himself at exposure to risk and, and death. And whenever he used a pencil, uh, he would use it down to the very nub in, in honor of the effort that an Indian peasant had put into it. Uh, he, he told the Indian people if someone were to ever uh, drop a nuclear bomb on the nation of India, they were to, to look up, to watch without fear, and to pray for the pilot. Now, all of this kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, it sounds like the way Jesus lived and taught, doesn't it? Yeah, but the, 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 perhaps the most striking, I really would say, the saddest part of Gandhi's life was that he never even considered becoming a Christian because as, as Gandhi observed the lives of the Christians in Europe that he interacted with, he, he, he noted that most of them live lives of blatant racism, uh, blind dogmatism, of extreme self-righteousness. Uh, he was once asked to leave a Christian church, a Christian worship service, because he wasn't white. He was thrown off a train once by Christians. He was regularly excluded from Christian hotels and businesses and restaurants because he wasn't white. And he said this, it affected him so much. And in his, in his autobiography, he wrote, he said, quote, the lives of Christians did not give me anything that the lives of men of other faiths have failed to give. So it was impossible for me to regard Christianity as a perfect religion or the greatest of all religions. Now, if you're here today and you're, and you're skeptical of Christianity, maybe you walked in, this is your first time, you came off the street, it's Christmas, you know, you're back in church, your, your friend bribed you to do with that, you know, pretty girl or handsome guy that you were going to meet after the service, uh, but you're, you're here and maybe you're skeptical like Gandhi was, maybe, you know, that's you, let me tell you, tell you today, 
That's understandable. It's understandable. Maybe it's understandable for you because it's, it's based on the lives of Christians that you've seen in the past or a church that you've been a part of at some point. And yet, if that's you today, let me just suggest to you, because I will, <laughs> that you perhaps, like Gandhi, as brilliant as Gandhi was, and as brilliant maybe as you are, that maybe, just maybe, you've missed the point of the Bible. And maybe you've missed the point of Christianity and who Jesus was. You say, what do you mean? I mean this. I mean, if you're reading the Bible in the hopes that it's going to give you, uh, you know, people in there that are going to always inspire you to greatness and live these great moral lives, you're reading the wrong book. You're reading the wrong book. Noah is a drunk. Abraham's a liar. Jacob's a hustler. Moses has got a temper that won't quit. And the list goes on and on until we get to what we just read this morning, the low point of David's life. And really, it's one of the most significant and famous failures in literature outside Adam and Eve's. What, therefore, is the Bible all about? What's Christianity all about? Is it just about how to teach you how to be good and obey some rules so that God will bless you and people may like you? Or maybe, just maybe, is it about something else altogether? I want to suggest to you this morning that this passage, arguably more than any other passage in all the Bible, hear this, shows us the breadth and points to the depth of what, the, of what Christianity is, of what the Bible is, and of who Jesus is. Was. What is the Bible all about today? Three things, three broad things we're going to see from this passage first. We're going to look at the nature of people, two, the problem of sin, and finally, ultimately, the story of a lamb. Well, let's begin here in number one, looking at the nature of people, and to get going, let's just sort of summarize our passage, look full in the face at what David's done here, because it's tragic. In the story, it takes place around 900 BC. We see that David, the, the Israel's greatest king, king at the time, is on his palatial roof one night, and he looks out and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. Her name is Bathsheba. She, he, David sends his messengers to go get her, to, to bring her to himself. He, he sleeps with her, and, and we find She's married to a man named Uriah the Hittite who's out fighting for David, out fighting for his country. And when David finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant, he sends for Uriah to come home immediately. He attempts to get him drunk, that he'll go home and enjoy the comforts of home and perhaps sleep with his own wife and assume the baby is his. But Uriah is too honorable to do such a thing. He's, he's being the man that David won't be. He refuses the comforts of home while his fellow soldiers are out at war. And because he won't go along with David's scheme, David sends an army, excuse me, a letter to his army captain, Joab, and tells him to put together this special forces mission to go to a point uh, in the battle where the fighting's fiercest, and then instructs that the men should fall back, that Uriah will be killed. And that's exactly what happens. And if you were you're keeping score there, you may have noted that David broke just about half the Ten Commandments in one sordid episode, and specifically, David's committed adultery, but not just with any woman. And he's committed murder, but not just of any man. Do you know who Bathsheba was? 
Well, when David was a fugitive before he became king and he was on the run hiding from Saul out in the desert, there was a group of men who came together and who aided David and who risked their lives time and again to save his life. And through their bravery and through their skill and their rescue of their soon-to-be king, they became known as David's mighty men. David's mighty men. And Bathsheba, it says, when the messenger came to David, said, Bathsheba is the daughter, it said, of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Why those two names in particular? Well, in 2 Samuel 23, we read that Eliam and Uriah were actually two of David's mighty men. In other words, these aren't just any soldiers. These are soldiers to whom David owes his very life, and David covets the daughter of one man and murders the other, and then does his best to cover up both actions. Oh. And this, this is all done by the man who wrote the Psalms, by the Psalms, who was called a man after God's own heart, who wrote Psalm 40, I think it was verse 8. I desire to do your will, O God. Your law is on my heart. Yeah. How could the man who wrote that, and I believe meant that, be the same man who did all of this. And the answer the Bible gives us, though it's not popular, but if you'll have the courage to face it this morning, it'll change your life, is this. It's that everyone, everyone, including the very best people who have ever lived, have an incredible capacity to do enormous evil. I'll say it again. It wasn't very popular. I could tell. Everyone, the Bible says, including the very best people who have ever lived, have an incredible capacity for enormous evil. Now, we as modern, you know, individualistic, selfie-prone Western people, we are convinced of our own innate goodness and yumminess. You know, as the, as the song says, we are, you're beautiful, you're beautiful, it's true. You know, over and over again. We balk at this, just like our ancestors did a generation ago, as the British and American leaders did at the beginning of World War II when the, when the war broke out and reports of the Holocaust began to come in. They couldn't believe it. They, they couldn't believe that educated, civilized, especially white people, there's an undercurrent of cultural bias and racism there, could ever do such a thing as a Holocaust. And especially the political left, the liberal left of the day, had a hard time with this. But after the war, a whole generation of specifically liberal thinkers abandoned that line of thinking. And history records, incredibly, they became theologically conservative. And the list is almost endless of these, you know, the literary. But here is one example uh, the British author William Golding, who wrote the novel The Lord of the Flies, you may have read it in school growing up, or I don't know, for fun one day, perhaps. Uh, you may know it's about a story of kids who crash land on an island, uh, and they set up their own sort of internal government there, free from outside control, but inevitably... The seeds of darkness in their own heart take over and darkness and chaos come to pass. And here's why Golding said that he wrote that book. And it's a a longer quote, but hang with it because it's amazing. He said, quote, the overall intention may be stated simply enough. He's writing to Americans here. He said, before the Second World War, I believed in the perfectibility of social man. 
I mean, through programs, education, wealth redistribution, people could become perfect. But after the war, I did not because I was unable to. I had discovered what one man could do to another. I must say that anyone who moved through those years without understanding that man produces evil as a bee produces honey must have been blind or wrong in the head. It was on to say, this evil wasn't done by the headhunters of New Guinea or by some quote-unquote primitive tribe in the Amazon. It was done skillfully, coldly, by educated men, doctors, lawyers, by men with the tradition of civilization behind them, to beings of their own kind. I came to believe that man was sick, not exceptional man, but average man. I believe that the condition of man was to be a morally diseased creation and that the best job I could do at the time was to trace the connection between his diseased nature and the international mess he gets himself into. Now to many of you, this will seem trite, obvious, and familiar in theological terms. He concludes this way, man is a fallen being. He is gripped by original sin. He wasn't a Christian. He says his nature is sinful and his state is perilous. He said, I accept the theology and admit the triteness. But in this case, what is trite is true. Yeah, that's pretty shocking there. Now, again, we don't like it uh, as individuals, especially we believe as individuals, this couldn't be us. We don't believe we're, we are capable of tremendous evil. We don't like to believe that our, our little leader in promised land is capable of tremendous evil. We don't. And we don't believe that because we point to the good things that we do, right? We point to the good things we do. So let's take a moment here and look at the good things we do just for a second. Let me ask you, when you're honest, why are you honest? Hmm? Uh, when you fill out that expense report correctly, because of course you do do that, don't you? When you, when you fill it out correctly, why? Uh, when you report your taxes accurately to the IRS, because that's what you do, right? Yeah, why do you do so? In other words, why do you do the good things you do? Well, Jonathan Edwards, the the 17th century American theologian, Jonathan Edwards took a hard look at himself and he asked himself, he asked the world the same thing in his book called The Nature of True Virtue. And he, he said that he saw within himself as a Christian person two reasons why he and why people do what's right, one of which he called common virtue and the other which he called true virtue. And he said common virtue is really the source of everyday goodness. It's the source of why, you know, most people are good most of the time. And he said common virtue sort of goes like this. All right. Common virtue goes like this. He says, be honest because it pays, right? Because it pays. Because if you're not honest, you might get caught and you'll end up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And you don't want that to happen to you. If people aren't honest, society crumbles. There's a, you know, the, the, the jobless rate goes up. Bad things will happen. You don't want bad things on your conscience. You don't want to go to jail. So be honest because it pays, right? Now, what's that? What's the motivation? Well, it's fear, right? It's fear. You're, you do what's right because you're afraid of what will happen if you don't. But he goes on to say there's actually a second main driver of everyday goodness, common virtue, and it sounds like this. Just be honest and be generous because you don't want to be like those people over there. You're better than them. You're better than the dishonest people who cheat on their taxes. You know, son, we're not like those people. We're better than that. In other words, fear, right? I don't want to get caught. And pride, 
I'm better than that, are behind what most people call their good behavior, the good things they do. And, and then, and then though, somehow we act shocked. We're just shocked when you or someone that you know does something terrible or someone does something terrible in the news. We ask, how could that person have done that? We never saw it coming. You laugh. That's what's happening in the news. We never saw it coming. How could they do that? I'll tell you what's happened. They've nurtured fear and pride. You've nurtured fear and pride in your life the whole time. And now it's just grown past and blew past your ability to control it. That's what's happened. And if you ask that, if you ever ask, how could that person have done this? How could I have done this? It's only because you, like Gandhi, have not looked full in the face of what the depth of the Bible has to show you about the human heart. So you begin to realize, you begin to realize he's right. This is true. And you begin to say, man, oh my God, I am no different than David. I do things all the time. I do things all the time out of fear and pride. God help me. Even what I call, what we call goodness really isn't truly good, which is Edwards defines as doing what's right and good and true out of a love of the beauty and nature and character of God. That's what's true virtue. See, most of our actions, even the good ones, have fear of pride behind them. You say, well, okay, yeah, maybe, but where's that in the passage? Is that really what's happening with David here? Oh, yeah. Did you catch verse one by any chance? Oh, beautiful Hebrew narrative is genius. It says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. But it says, but David remained in Jerusalem. Let me ask you, why was David at home, huh? Not out with the army as was his duty as Israel's military leader. In this case, it's likely his pride. I mean, why wasn't he out doing the very thing that had gotten him to be successful in where he was? And the answer is a person. You only stop doing the thing that's made you successful when you think, I don't need to do that anymore. I'm good. David's thinking like any other person who's accomplished a lot, like in any leader has thinks, like a lot of pastors think, you know, they, here's what he's thinking. I have worked really hard and I deserve a break. I mean, come on, people. I mean, look at chapter nine. Weren't you here last week, David, saying to you? I mean, look at that whole Mephibosheth deal, right? I mean, I rescued that poor crippled boy, you know, brought him to my palace, united the kingdom. Uh, look at chapter 10, people. Defeated the Ammonites. I deserve a break, right? I just went out to war, deserve a rest. Don't the people know what I've done for them? I mean, it was me who killed Goliath, right? Wasn't Saul. I refuse to strike back at Saul, that old decrepit lunatic, you know, and if it weren't for me and all I've done, we wouldn't even have a nation. Why can't I stay home this one time and do what I want, right? Maybe even this, God understands I've got needs as a man. My wife doesn't even understand my needs as a man, right? As a king, I deserve to have my kingly needs met. See, it's pride at its essence. And the worst part was it came out when David was at the top, not the bottom, proving once again that success is a bigger test of a person's heart and character than failure ever can be. That's number one. That's number one. The Bible says, again, front to back, if we'll have the courage and guts to face it, that all people, even you, the very best ones, have an enormous capacity for evil and failure. Bible's unflinching. It's relentless. 
And why, though, is this? Why is this? Why are people like that? Well, number two, there's a problem of sin. The problem of sin. What do I mean? I mean, if you've ever seen the Terminator movies, the Terminator movies, you've seen exactly what the power of, hear this, of underestimation looks like. Why is the Terminator so deadly? And it's not because he looks like an Austrian bodybuilder on steroids, you know, it's not, not that. No, it's because at a certain level, the Terminator could be anybody, right? And he looks like me or you, uh, you know, any time. I mean, in fact, in one scene, the, uh, the police, they go, they go to Sarah Connery, you know, the heroine in the story, and they say, hey, come with us, you know, hide with us on the third floor of the police station. Nobody would try to get to you here. But they only say that because they have underestimated the power of the killer, right? And that is the essence of sin and the problem of sin. See, sin by its very nature causes us to underestimate its power, to pretend like it's not there, even to go so far as to say it doesn't exist. And the reason, church, you can know this is true is from the very first time the word sin is even mentioned in the Bible. It's not mentioned in the connection with the story of Adam and Eve, as you might think. It's in the very next story with their children, two sons named Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. And we read in this story in Genesis 4 that Cain's heart is growing hard towards God. God loves him so much he comes to him and appeals to him. And God's mercy says this, watch what God says to Cain here, it's amazing, in four, chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, it says, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Oh, it's an incredibly, incredibly insightful picture of what sin is. It crouches. I mean, what does it mean to crouch? It means like a predator, cat-like predator waiting to pounce. Sin makes itself look smaller than it is. And what God is telling us in Cain is this. The problem with sin is that it always makes itself look smaller and less deadly than it is. And the best illustration I've found for this is one I bring out from time to time. Uh, it's from, it's called Tales of the Kingdom by David and Karen Maines. If you're a parent, you should try to find those books. I think they're out of print, but you can still find them on eBay for like 75 bucks a piece. So anyway, Christmas, it makes your Christmas list there. But um, it's an amazing story here. And this one story in particular is about a young girl named Princess Amanda. And Amanda uh, lives in a place called Great Park, which is the lone place of safety for those who have escaped from evil enchanted city and the enchanter who lives there and the brave people who resist the enchanter keep up Great Park in the hopes that the king will one day return and set the broken things to right and overthrow the power of the enchanter and rescue their fallen world. And every spring in Great Park, because it's a fairy tale, great dragons fly past Great, uh, great Park and lay their beautifully colored dragon eggs all over the place. But one of the first rules of Great Park is this. It is forbidden to keep dragon eggs because dragon eggs grow up in the hatch and dragons grow up to breathe fire and cause destruction. And one day, though, Princess Amanda finds these two beautifully colored bronze eggs. And instead of taking them into caretaker, she hides them. She swears to herself she'll get rid of them, take care of it later, dispose of them later when they hatch. But then when they hatch, one of them does hatch. And this is what happened. It said the little beast 
turned its brown eye on her, and a great tear dropped onto its breast. Amanda began to love the baby dragon, though she knew it was forbidden. She kept a hatchling for a pet. Just for a little while, she thought, perhaps I can tame it. But the dragon continued to grow. Amanda continued to feed and play with it. And then it said, Amanda soon discovered that her pet hated to be left by itself. The dragon particularly hated to be left alone at night. And so Amanda began to stay away from the great celebrations. Amanda became angry at the law that kept her from sharing her pet with others. What harm is one small dragon, she thought. But the dragon kept on growing. We see it's big enough now to breathe fire. It begins to light little fires in her home, but she's careful to put those out and remove the traces of smoke and the smell of smoke. And she begins to be suspicious and resentful of people who love her and ask, why aren't you at the great celebrations anymore? Where are you? See, she, like David, thinks these people don't understand me. They don't understand my needs. But then months go by, and one night, Amanda said that she realized that the scales of the dragon slipping beside her were very hard. She knew that its big body was crowding her and that grown dragons were no laughing matter. This was the last night she would allow the dragon to return from its hiding place in the forest to sleep with her in the den. It had become too big and Princess Amanda was afraid somehow she had to get rid of the dragon. But a few mornings later, because she hasn't done it, she wakes up to the smell of fire and smoke. The dragon's gone on a rampage, is burning down Great Park. And now she's scared for her home, for her friends and her life. And then it says, suddenly she knew great harm could come from one small tame dragon. Because small tame things grow into big wild beasts. She finds the dragon, she confronts it, she commands it to leave, but when it heard her call, the story says, it stepped out of the trees into the meadow to face her. Amanda gasped. It had grown even more, and she had not noticed how much the dragon had become cunning. Why had she not seen this? The dragon attacks her. She's locked in mortal combat with it, and though she does kill it, it costs her dearly, and her many of her friends die. Why had she not seen how large and cunning it had become? Oh, the answer is because no matter what kind of a thing a forbidden thing is, a forbidden thing always makes itself look smaller and appear less deadly than it really is. See, as an egg, Amanda underestimated its power. As a full-grown beast, she underestimated its power. It doesn't matter how big or small the sin is. The power of sin is that it always causes you to underestimate it. Sin was crouching at her door until it came for the kill. That's what sin does, which is why the old theologian John Owen said famously, quote, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. How then, church, how can we do this? How can we overcome the problem of our nature and the power of sin? It's through the third and final and breathtaking thing this passage shows us that the Bible is really all about. It's number three, the story of a lamb. What's God's solution for self and for sin? Well, what did David's friend, the prophet Nathan, give David in the passage that we read? What did David, I mean, what did Nathan give him? Because David, right, David's gone. I mean, his, his conscience is seared, right? I mean, his life is spiraling out of control. He's kept his whole thing hidden and covered up for at least a year, enough time for the baby to be born and grow a bit. I mean, what could Nathan possibly tell him now to bring him back? I mean, what could you do for a man like David in David's position? He's the king. He's untouchable, unmanageable. 
But here, oh, Nathan does the greatest thing anybody could have possibly done for the king. And it's the same thing God does for us. And I believe the same thing God wants to do for many of you this morning, if you'll receive it. When Nathan came to David in the courtroom, did he come with shouts of condemnation? I mean, uh, was his neck bulging, right? I mean, veins just throbbing with anger and with redness. No, did he, did he bust all up in David's grill? No. He simply gives David the only thing that can bring his heart back. What does he give him? Oh, he tells David the story of a lamb. Of a lamb. He tells him a story about a solitary and innocent lamb raised and loved by a poor man, but then a wicked and more powerful man came and took the lamb away. And at the end of the story, Nathan gives David the ultimate prophetic punchline. He says, He took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man, and he said, prepared it for the one who had come to him. See, the lamb here, it hasn't just been killed or taken away. Nathan in the Hebrew, he's employing a play on words. That word prepared is the same word the Jewish priests would use to describe what they would do to a lamb in the Jewish tabernacle. In other words, the lamb hasn't just been taken or prepared. It's been sacrificed. It's been sacrificed. What brought David's heart back was literally the story of a sacrificial lamb. See, what uh, pricked his conscience and pried open his soul is what the Bible is all about and what you need to hear this morning is about the story of the lamb. You say, what's that? Oh, all through the Bible, uh, a lamb is used as a picture of sacrifice and atonement and redemption. Moses sacrificed a lamb back in Exodus to prepare the people uh, for their crossing over. And, and here Nathan gives us a glimpse of what the New Testament shows us in full. The person of Jesus Christ whom John the Baptist calls the Lamb of God. And whom we see in the book of Revelation as a risen lamb. You say, how can that be? Where does it come from? It's here in Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. A man the Bible calls a prophet. Isaiah, centuries before Jesus ever lived, wrote his book, and in chapter 53, he predicted three things about God's coming lamb. He said, first, that the lamb of God would be taken by us. It says, by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. Second, the lamb would be offered for us, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Third, he would suffer as us, for he bore the sin of man and made intercession for the transgressors. See, Nathan here, Nathan here is showing you, Isaiah is telling you that the only thing that can bring humanity back is a lamb taken by you, offered for you, and suffering, hear this, not just for you, but as you, in your place. And Jesus did exactly that. Centuries later, the same thing, which is why a, a famous commentator, Eugene Peterson, who wrote the Message Bible, he, he pointed out, oh, there's a remarkable parallel between what goes on in David's courtroom here and what would happen later, many years later, in Pontius Pilate's courtroom with Jesus. Uh, in, in, in David's court, Nathan comes comes to him and says, you are the man. But Pilate turns to Jesus and said, behold the man. Two courtrooms, two kings, and in both courtrooms, the situation's topsy-turvy. It's turned upside down from the way it ought to be. In David's courtroom, a man who ought to have been Israel's final and just judge was the one on trial for crimes he had committed. But in the other, Jesus in Pilate's courtroom, the world's final 
and just judge, was on trial for crimes he did not commit. Two kings, two courtrooms, one sitting as judge but guilty, the other condemned as guilty, but really the judge. See, God sends a prophet to rectify the first situation in David's courtroom, but in Pilate's courtroom, no one comes in to set it right. One courtroom is the story of a lamb, the other has the lamb itself. And then that lamb, the true judge and just judge of all the earth, is taken out and died forsaken on a cross. Taken by us, offered for us, suffered as us. Why? Oh, hear this. It's because he loves you. It's because he loves you so that we can be forgiven, church, and freed. All those old lambs in the Old Testament, they can only forgive the guilt of sin, wipe it away in the past. But Jesus, the greater lamb, was resurrected back from the dead to bring freedom from sin, to change our hearts, hear this, and our motives to free us from all the little dragon eggs that we hide of sin and of guilt and of shame and of lust and perversity and drunkenness and all the ways we use our work and people to justify our lives and hide from God. He came to free us. Free us from all those things that will burn down our lives. If we're not dealt with, how can we be free? Oh, the passage shows us. It's that we repent. Hear that word, repent. How David repented. He said this. It's amazing. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. Not just against Bathsheba, not against my wife or Uriah or my nation. I've sinned against the Lord. He saw that he was the man who put the lamb to death personally. See, and once he did that, once David connected his life to the story of the lamb, look, look at what Nathan immediately said to him. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. And that's amazing. And that's nice. But let me ask you, how though, how can Nathan say this? I mean, how could David go free and pardon? I mean, didn't the law require, right, require that any man who committed murder and adultery like this should have been put to death for his sins? Yeah, it did. It required that. Then how, how could David have gone free when no one took the blow for what he did? But the answer is, Someone did take the blow. Someone did die for David's sin. See, there was another lamb in this story. Someone who died so that David could live. Who was it? It was Uriah. Uriah was slaughtered, though he was innocent. Uriah was out fighting the battle that David would not. He was out with the ark in the field with God's presence, doing what David should have done. And he got what David deserved. Is it fair? No. But neither was what Jesus suffered on the cross. Not fair at all. No. On the cross, Jesus, the greater Uriah, he died abandoned, forsaken by all his friends outside the city gate. It's amazing, but do you even know what the most amazing, the most mind-blowing part of the whole thing is? Uriah here. Uriah was the sacrificial lamb. David used to hatch his plot, but David here, we see he's released from what he deserved, not despite his actions, but through his actions. God rescued David from his sin, through his sin. This is a picture of the gospel. See, God has delivered us, not despite Jesus' death, but because of and through Jesus' death, because we killed Jesus. Now we can live. Oh, see, God, like he freed David, can free us, church, from our sin because 
we kill Jesus. Only a sovereign God could do that. Only a sovereign God can take all the bad things in your life and work all things for good for those who love him. And he can even work your bad things for good today if you'll let him. Now we're going to close in a moment and give you an opportunity to respond to this, but as we do, I want to just apply this briefly and aggressively in three ways. Number one, let me hear you. Let me just say to you, you need a Nathan in your life. We need a Nathan. You need someone who will speak truth to you even when you don't want to hear it. And do you know where you're not going to find this person? You will not find them on Facebook. You're not going to find them on Facebook. They're not there. They don't exist. It's pretend, an illusion. You only find it face to face. Someone in the courtroom of your life speaking truth to you. Before the sun sets tonight, I just appeal to you. Demand someone be an Nathan to you. Give someone permission. Give, give them this prepaid lifetime hunting license in your life to go after you. You'll save your life if you do. And secondly, though, more importantly, you need a Savior. You need a Savior. See, Jesus isn't just some example to follow. Uh, what Gandhi missed, maybe what you're missing, is that you're not saved because you mimic him, although that's good. You're not saved because you read about him, although that's good. You're saved when you trust him. When you trust him. Have you trusted him? The way you do that is through number three, finally. We need to repent. How do you do that? As David said it, God against you only. Have I sinned? See, not just against people. What will break your heart and free you is when you see it's against God first. God first. And later we read that he prayed this in Psalm 51. He said, create in me a clean heart, O God. Hide your face from me and blot out my sin. It's ultimately fulfilled in what Jesus did on the cross. God hid his face from his own son that our sin could be blotted out. If you'll hear that and receive that this morning, your life can be changed. Let's pray here as our band comes and as we close. Well, I'm just thanking you for the, the, the beauty of your, of your word to us today. Thank you for these things. Thank you for truth when it's tough and grace when it's needed. Lord, I, I'm in a small way interceding for us today just as you, Jesus, our high priest, intercede for us. And pray that there, if there's someone here who doesn't know you now in this moment, they would encounter you.